This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. Diversity is certainly having its moment in the Australian business landscape. To discuss the politics of diversity, I'm chatting to Cathy Law, a freelance copywriter and the marketing communications manager for Dawn, a professional and social network that aspires to have an inclusive Australia with culturally diverse leadership across the public and private sectors. Cathy's work for some of Australia's largest entities, such as Westpac, Insurance Australia Group, in roles across HR, corporate affairs and communications. Throughout her career, she's been vocal and active on matters relating to women, work and cultural diversity, and especially on smashing unconscious bias. Her experience of motherhood has deepened her passion in the area of diversity and inclusion. Motherhood has also made her connect more with her Vietnamese heritage, sense of identity and the corporate ladder realities. When she's not wrangling words and fighting the diversity fight, she's chasing after her toddler. I warmly welcome her to the show. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amber, for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. So tell us a bit about where your career began and where you've ended up. Yeah, so I, I graduated with a degree in HR, which for a culturally diverse person was uncommon at the time. Uh, I think um, HR was a relatively new degree. So, And I, I chose that as a degree because I enjoy working directly with people and not crunching numbers. So there's a stereotype that most Asians are um, accountants or people in finance. So I kind of went the, the other route. I grew up in a conservative Catholic family. So I actually wanted to be something a bit more creative, so performing arts or um, writing. But in my parents' view, uh, it's a very traditional view. It doesn't pay the bills, so I spent <laughs> I, <love that. laughs> um, I spent almost ten years in in HR before falling in love with the writing side of things. So I ventured into corporate affairs and communications, and here I am right now, freelancing as a copywriter. That's great. I love that path, and I think sometimes you've got to go somewhere else to end up where you're meant to be. That's kind of been my experience as well. So that's totally fascinating. So as a kid. How would you describe your childhood and do you think being of Asian descent, was it something that benefited you or did you find it a bit of a challenge growing up? Yeah, so it, it benefited me in that I had an interesting lunch or sometimes the smelliest, but growing up in the southwest of Sydney, which is home to the most diverse communities in Australia, it didn't affect me so much. I didn't look that different, but if I were to say in regional Australia, it would be a different story. Yes, But I would say that a challenge is that my family have always drilled it in me that I needed to work harder, I needed to study harder, get really good grades simply because I was different and because I was Asian. Even though I was born in Australia, I had the same um, access to education and everything, it was just because I was different. So it just meant that I had to work harder. 
I would get the odd slur from time to time where people would say, hey, go back to your country. Um, oh, no. Yeah. Like, even, even these days as well, like I remember I was walking my son down the street. This happened a couple of months ago and, um, you know, with prams there, they're quite wide, so sometimes it takes about three quarters of the footpath. And then this lady just yelled at me and said, do I have to move back, uh, move uh, to the side for you? Like go back to your country. And I was just so shocked. And I, I just wanted to yell out and say, hey, mate, I was born here. But I didn't because my son was asleep, so I didn't. <laughs> oh, your baby's sleeping. Never wake up, <laughs> even, even if it's coming across as uh, you're avoiding your diversity uh, challenges there. But I'm curious to know, to s- dissect a little bit more into the idea that diversity is such a business focus now, and I know that plenty of companies that I work with as a consultant, big and small, recognise both the economic and social benefits of having a, a diverse workforce. Do you have any insight into why it's taken so long for this to be actually a conversation that we're having, given the fact that Australia has been a multicultural country for, for many decades? Yeah, so I think it's great that it's a big focus now. So when I studied HR, it wasn't a focus at all. Um, So I think um, it's good. We can't ignore the benefits and we simply can't ignore the rising economies and the fact that Australia is in the Asia Pacific. But I think that there are many reasons why it's taken a little bit longer than we would like to. So it's taken long because Australia isn't as progressive as we'd like to think we are. I mean, it, it takes many years to make any sort of decision or implement any sort of change. An example would be matters of gender equality. We are still penalising working parents and also recently the same-sex marriage. So it's taking this long just to get the yes vote. And it was only 10 years ago that Prime Minister Kevin Rudd uh, recognised the the stolen generation and apologised. So that's one thing. Uh, Another thing that I find is unconscious bias, which are, you know, social stereotypes about certain groups of people. Uh, So because they are unconscious, people don't know, um, they're not aware of it. So um, I find that, um, you know, there's lots of common misconceptions in the workforce. An example that I can give is is that Asians, um, people have this misconception that Asians lack ambition and they're not assertive and therefore don't have leadership aspirations. And it's due to their assumptions of what a leader should look or sound like, which is typically a white man. There's also flawed recruitment practices, which I've seen as well. What would be an example of that? What would be a flawed recruitment process, do you think? Yeah, so um, there's two parts to it. Um, First part is unconscious bias. And the second part is that, well, studies have found that resumes with Anglo names are actually three times more likely to be invited for an interview uh, compared to candidates with a Chinese name. casting, whatever they call it. Um, yeah. And they take the resume names off and, and it happens, I think, not only with, with race but also gender apparently, especially That's in right. STEM and areas like that where men traditionally have dominated. And I've spoken to a lot of people where this has actually happened to them. So my cousin, uh, she's born here uh, and she married a, an, an Anglo guy and his surname is obviously Anglo, so she took his surname and then she found that she um, had so many phone calls um, for an interview um, compared to when she had her maiden name. Um, and then when people actually saw her, they were like so shocked. They, they, would, they, they would actually say, oh, I didn't expect you to look like that. 
That's incredible. Yeah, it, I think that must incredible. happen. And, and also, you know, the way you look versus the way you sound and if you've got an Australian accent versus an accent that might have a tinge of another culture mixed in, I think that often, you know, can work both ways for you. Yeah, that's right. Amazing. Th- um, yeah. yeah, anything else on that point? That yeah, um, I'd also like to, to point out that um, people have this mindset that, oh, it's, it's only a matter of time before something happens. So it's, it's this um, um, it's being complacent um, to believe that it's only a matter of time before cultural diversity is better represented or a matter of time where we'll have um, a, a cultural diverse leader. And this relies on the assumption that everyone is playing on an even level playing field and that the best person gets the job, which in, in most cases, that's, that's not true. So, and, and knowing this makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable, like no one wants to admit that they have privilege. Oh, of course not. And I think it kind of leads into my next point, which is um, one of my former guests on this show, Dr. Michael Kimmel, who calls himself um, the world's foremost male feminist. Um, He's fantastic. He is often quoted as saying privilege is invisible to those who enjoy it. And I agree, but I do feel like sometimes if I was, for example, male and white and in a privileged sort of background and women as well in that that position, in the debate you can often feel alienated and you think, well, you know, if that's me and I'm hiring people, do I have to overcompensate? How do I actually make this work so we don't go so much the other way that we, um, we're being more tokenistic and I guess we always worry about those appointments, um, whether it be in public life or in leadership roles where there's an us and them kind of, you know, vibe. So how do you think we can do this with full awareness but also not to penalise people who may be very qualified for the job but, you know, they may may be white, they may be male, they may be privileged. I mean, I think it all comes down to how you view what a leader is because you can be a leader and not have any direct reports or be accountable for anyone in particular. Um, You can, it it all starts with you, that's what I believe, and you have to have an inclusive mindset. So what that is, is just mutual respect for everyone and um, being self-aware, like, I mean, I do admit myself that I do have privilege. I mean, I've been privileged to go to a private school. I've been privileged to have education, in which my parents' home country, many girls don't have that, that level of education. So, I mean, when you feel awkward about it, you will be awkward, if you know what I mean. So, I do. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, a great, that's a great way to put it, actually. Yeah. Like, just don't be awkward about it. Just come with an inclusive mindset feel like just treat everyone like they're equal don't be tokenistic don't think oh um this person's going to be like a diversity hire or something just treat everyone like you want to be treated that's great i think that just comes back to human decency as well which often is missing sometimes in this in the in the debate and the over intellectualization and the economic figures around why we need diversity but at the end of the day you're right it's it's what we all strive for in a in a society yeah, yeah treat Treat everyone like humans, you know, just, yeah, don't be awkward. <laughs> so to talk a little bit about um, your hat with, with Dawn, you, that's part of one of the two jobs that you do, and it says we aim to create a professional network that advocate for and promote inclusive leadership from within Australia's culturally diverse workplaces and making that, I guess, a bit of a goal in both the public and private sectors. It sounds like such a big lofty thing. So what does that really involve for, for the company and how do you even measure your success on that? Yeah, I, I do agree that it's a big, big lofty thing. Like um, 
I feel that there's a bit of um, a diversity and inclusion fatigue right now. Like people are just drilling in, hey, diversity, inclusion, there's so much benefits and all that. It does sound a little wishy-washy, but it, it kind of reminds me of the um, corporate social responsibility debate yeah. a decade ago and before that it was all about environmental accountability. So I think these things do go through phases and it's not to sort of say they're not important, but I think you're right. You can only hear about something so much before you start to shut down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, people, I do feel that people are fatigued about it, but then at the same time, there's no action. People are, Dawn gets contacted um, many times to say, hey, we want to do something, but then they're not accountable for it. They're actually not making decisions. And just really, it's kind of like the hot next big thing, you know, a little bit like, hey, I want I don't know, the next Louis Vuitton bag or something like that. Not not to that extreme, but it doesn't seem to be making any decisions, um, anyone making any decisions. But besides that, um, what Dawn does, so Dawn consults as well. Um, so we actually go into organisations um, and help their leadership pipelines and help um, educate them on the benefits of it and how they can uh, grow culturally leader, the next pipeline of culturally diverse leaders. I didn't say that, right? So how do you measure success? It's not as straightforward. And there has been some debate around quotas versus targets, particularly with um, what's happening in Parliament at the moment. People I was going to say, it sort of mirrors the public and private yeah. sector, which is you, you both focused on that with within dorm. But it's it's interesting how that's kind of mirroring each other a little bit. And people are either really one way or another. They're either really for or really against this quotas or targets, um, you know, focus, I guess, um, for, for women or whatever the diversity target might be. Yeah, so personally I don't think quotas work that easily for culturally diverse leadership. And, the and why do you why, say that? I'm just going to pick you up on that. Why, why yeah, do you say that? The reason why is you can be a white Anglo person but you could have a very culturally diverse mindset. You could have worked in India, China, America. You would have had a wealth of knowledge, cultural knowledge, but you just look different versus someone that may be Asian but living in Australia but has never travelled in their life and doesn't speak their mother tongue. Mm, that's so, interesting. Yeah, yeah, so you can be culturally, you have you can have a culturally diverse mindset but not have a culturally diverse heritage if that makes sense so it's not as clear-cut and plus there's a lot of negative connotation towards the word quota as well it it suggests something that is um policed it's it's kind of like I don't know I kind of think of it as kind of force feeding someone something it's um yeah versus um targets um I feel is a bit more aspirational it has something that you it's something that you could look forward to are we just playing with words though is it kind of just splitting hairs I guess it's that thing of I've heard just to go into the political realm you know the liberal party there are liberal people in leadership there who say yeah we kind of we do need quotas but we can't call them that because the labor party calls it that so it's sort of that thing so we're not going to do it or they did it first and so I guess if it gets you to the point you need to be does it matter it doesn't matter. Well, that, that's my view on the definitions of each word and how it's perceived. Yes. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't feel like something should be forced down someone, um, forced onto someone. I feel that that's not the right approach. I think before you actually commit to something like that, you need to 
have just going back to that inclusive mindset. So being mutually respectful of everyone and, and treating them like you want to be treated. Also, companies should collect meaningful data as well. So if you are committed to having culturally diverse leaders, collect um, data on their cultural heritage as well. So that way you could measure diversity and progress um, and hold leaders to account. So yeah, just have like a, a, a diversity champion. So a lot of companies have um, what's called uh, employee action groups. So where it's kind of like a, um, a social club, so to speak, where they talk about ways in which they could encourage like women in leadership or um, awareness of LGBTI, that sort of thing. So um, where I was working at before at Westpac, they had a number of employee action groups, um, 10 actually, where they had a sponsor, uh, an executive sponsor and, yeah, they hold leaders to account for it. That seems really not only like a more appealing but it just seems like something people would buy into more easily than sort of I guess a policy which might come from the top if you like or from a HR department and then it's sort of forced upon you as well because I guess there's yeah. room for discussion and and human discussion as well as just you know the measuring and the and the feedback. Yeah, and it also shows that everyone's responsible for this as well. It does it doesn't take someone that's at the top of the food chain to make all the decisions. Um, you know, it all starts it all starts at the bottom as well. It all Absolutely. starts with, totally yeah, agree you as that. an individual. So do you think HR departments become bound by these hiring policies f- focused on diversity? And does it matter if that sort of happens or like we say, do we have to just be more sort of we want targets but we don't have to do it this way? Like how how accountable do you think we need to be to make this work for the long term. So it's not something that's like a flash in the pan where we have a moment of greatness and then we go back to our own old ways. Yeah. So when I was in my HR role, I think it's just it, it depends on your level of influence and the business that you are supporting. So I have seen where a lot of leaders are just, you know, they're desperate to find someone to fill the role and they don't care. Sometimes they don't care about diversity. But we always have to go back to the principles and also what the values of the company is. So I think it, it, it takes a really good HR business partner and also in very strong influencing skills to make this change. And also, of course, leaders need to buy into it. Well, of course. So. Number one, I think that's the thing. And like you yeah. said, it comes at all levels. And I think keeping everyone accountable probably helps in the organization. Yeah. And when, when people are hiring, I find, I mean, it is a very emotional process. And I'm just going back to um, unconscious bias as well. That's inevitable. And also it's, it's just people are so used to hiring people that are like themselves so that they forget everything else. They forget to think outside the box. So it's just kind of reminding people to refocus and relook at what's important. Absolutely. So in this path of, of seeking that true diversity in your in your workplace, can it backfire if companies don't fully engage their staff or there's a big, big change, for example, all of a sudden um, or perhaps all the leaders aren't sort of 100% committed to this? Is it kind of something we need to be conscious of and how do you address that so it actually works and people don't turn around and say, see, doesn't work? Yeah, so... I mean, it can backfire, so we can say that within our political environment at the moment. I mean, there's lots of talk about diversity, but there's not much action there. 
the Google case as well, which happened not too long ago with that infamous memo about the the idea on. Um, do you remember that case? I think no, do you just want to share that with us? Yeah, so um, one of the engineers shared a memo just via their social media platform. So he talks about how Google's diversity and inclusion programs are really extreme and authoritative. He argues that um, the reason why there's not many women in tech is because of their biological and cultural differences between men and women. Oh, and therefore my that goodness. plays a role in pay gap and lack of female representation. Yes. So because that happened in the States, they have different laws around dismissing employees and, and HR processes. So I think in that case it did backfire because personally I feel from an HR point of view um, there were other ways to handle that situation. Um, they actually ended up firing the guy because it, it, they, they viewed him as a reputational risk. Oh, of course. I mean, I mean, especially yeah. something so public and social media just goes so widely. Yeah, it's not like you can sweep that one of the carpet and say, "Oh, he just said that in the kitchen at lunchtime." It's um, yeah, it's very public. Yeah, but he did. Um, I mean, not so public. It was within the internal social media platform. Oh, okay, but, but I would it wasn't imagine like it was on Facebook no. or anything. It it leaked. Yeah, I was going to say there's always a leak. Like those, yeah. I, don't, I, I think the idea that it's a closed network always makes me laugh because I always my my litmus test when I work with my clients in the in the you know communication space would be around if you don't want to see it on the front page of the newspaper, maybe don't post it or say it. You know, it's that thing if you don't really know where that could go, people would take screenshots, um, whatever it might be. So yeah, I think once you put it out there, somehow it it, it does have a life of its own. So that's also a lesson, I guess. Um, if you do have some personal concerns and how you would deal with that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think also Starbucks made a really good stance recently as well. Um, so they closed 8,000 stores a couple of months ago so that their uh, employees can undergo unconscious bias training. Um, yes. Did you hear about that? I have heard a bit about this. And yeah. I, how, what, what does unconscious bias training look like? Do you have to, like, take your brain out and wash it and put it back in? I mean, how do you do that? Yeah, so unconscious bias training, I mean, depends on the the provider. Um, There's a lot of unlearning as well and and admitting privilege. Which must be confronting for a a workplace sometimes. It is confronting. That's why not many people want to do it. It's a bit of denial. Yeah. Yeah. But and I can see the benefits. Yeah. It would sort of be yeah. like, it's like when you go to therapy, like it's not necessarily something that's pleasant, but, you know, you hope it gets you where you need to get to in the end. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like going to the gym or running a marathon. It's it's a painful process, but, I mean, the the benefits are there. It's just, it's just that, you know, that pain. <laughs> get through the pain, no pain, no gain, yeah. as I say. Um, so what would be a great example of a diverse workforce that has had amazing outcomes that maybe people would relate to? And is there a lesson for all of us in how we can do this a bit better? Yeah, so the companies that I really love that I think are doing well uh, Qantas, Accenture, EY, Telstra. So they're, they're doing some good things. And, and they're, they're all big the, companies. They're all household name yeah, companies, obviously. So yeah. maybe they've got the resourcing as well. I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah that too, um, which is probably not good examples. I mean, they're good examples, but I should have um, pointed out some smaller companies. I mean, there's lots of smaller sort of companies um, as well. But the companies that typically do well are the ones that involve all their people across all levels. 
so I did mention before, like um, with the employee action groups as well, like having them just making people feel that they're empowered to have a voice within the organisation. Yes. It's just as simple as that. Yeah, it's just, a, I guess it's like anything. Like you mentioned the gym before, like once you start doing it, those muscles get worked and it becomes normal. Yeah. And then just view it as a, as a positive thing. Like don't view it as, oh my God, more work, unconscious bias, <laughs> training, boring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not sort of like your, you know, fire safety um, induction process or something where you say, yeah, yeah. it's a necessary evil, <laughs> but it's pretty boring at the end of the day. I think people can get a lot out of it. It's just having a mindset that's open to it as well. I'd be yeah. curious to know, you've obviously had a very um, interesting background, but you must have had some special mentors or inspirational people that have guided you. If so, is there one or two people that you could share and what have they taught you about business or life? Mm-hmm. The first person I'd like to mention is Lilian Chin. Oh, I love her. I love her too. Is something related or something really cool? I, I wish I wish she could be my best friend but she doesn't know who the hell I am. Uh, I, I love her because she's not to, she's not afraid to be who she is. She's comfortable in her own skin. She's got a sense of style. And most of all, she's she's Asian. So just growing up, she was the one of the, the only ethnically diverse people on TV. And you she, know, really me, was. What, she was groundbreaking and, and, yeah. and like you said, she just was herself. She didn't try to fit in, if you like. That's right. She didn't try to fit in the mould. And and for me, little me, that's that was really powerful. And I find that even today, it's still like that as well. Like I was in Canada recently and all the, the news anchors were diverse. And then I go back to Australia, it's, it's, all, it's all the same. Yeah. And then it just makes me feel like, well, what if I wanted to be a presenter? What if I wanted to, um, I don't know, be on TV or something like that? Like no one would consider me. No one would even consider me on The Bachelor because they all look the same. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to go on The Bachelor, I'm sure. Um, that's a great example of someone who you perhaps haven't met but has inspired you um, along the way. And do you have any final top three tips or two tips or one tip for anyone out there who wants to get on top of the politics of diversity? Sure. Um, so firstly, do unconscious bias training. Um, I think everyone would benefit from it, no matter who you are, where you work or what you do. It would make our community a lot more kind and inclusive. I know that sounds a bit woo-woo, but it's true. I'm all for more kindness. I think there's not enough of it out there, particularly in the business yeah. and political realms. And in, in business, in, in social media as well, I think people have forgotten to be empathetic. To give you an example, I'm part of a few mum groups and and um, some of them have like memberships of 20,000 people or something like that. So as you can imagine, it would be quite diverse. And then some of the comments that they make, which I mean, if I was to put myself in their shoes, I understand from their cultural point of view, but some of the comments, if you read it, and I shouldn't read it, but I do because I can't help it. I'm all like worked up. Um, some of them are just really nasty. Like people have just lost lost it they 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 forgot how to be human so um yeah do the training and if you're organizing any uh events or panel of speakers just think about having a diverse lineup oh i'm big on that yes i've worked in events over the years and you know we have um 
you know, rules of, particularly if it's banking or finance or somewhere that's, you know, there's not a lot of women at the very top that, you know, want to do public speaking, but we try and encourage it. We try to have at least 30%, um, no sausage fest, so no, no men only, yeah. um, and just ages as well. So not thinking that, you know, just you have to be grey-haired to have authority on stage as well. Yeah, and also the, the way we think about um, speakers as well, like it doesn't have to be someone that, you know, is like a CEO or in the C-suite. It, like I think everyone has a level of influence no matter where they are within the organisation, like what sort of level. It's just, if, yeah, just look at their achievements and make sure that it's a diverse lineup. Um, and another tip would be be the change you want to see, a, a lovely quote from Gandhi, Gandhi. Um, a bit cheesy, but if you want to support women, buy from them, Absolutely. support their business. Yeah. If you want to support more culturally diverse leaders or, or to have more culturally diverse leaders, try mentoring them or sponsoring someone in your organisation who has leadership potential. So, I mean, there's, they're, they're just small changes, but it can make a lot of difference. It's been fantastic to have you on the program today. If you want to connect further with Cathy, there will be some details on our show notes. I wish you all well in your diversity journey, Cathy, and thank you so much again for being my guest. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you for having me on the show. And episode 76 marks the end of an era. Season one of The Politics of Everything will be pausing here. I'm taking a break for the rest of the year and I hope to be back next year with some new guests, new ideas, and perhaps even a brand new show. Thank you so much for listening so diligently over the past 15 months since I aired the politics of everything. Your comments, your support, your downloads have all been much appreciated. We've reached several thousand regular listeners and I'm so grateful. I hope you enjoy the last episode of the show and feel free to go back to earlier shows to maybe reflect on some of the amazing guests and opportunities that the politics of everything has presented for you, for me and for the world. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.